Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We got a special guest today, the first time uh, flyer on the Conversations That Matter podcast. His name is Aaron Wren, and some of you may have heard of him. He has a podcast called The Masculinist, which is also a newsletter you can sign up for on his website. Uh, he used to do um, work with urban policy and consultation, and now, um, well, I'll let him describe a little bit about what he's up to now with The Masculinist. Welcome, Aaron. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me on. So tell, tell us a little bit about what can people expect if they go to themasculinist.com and they sign up for your newsletter? Well, the newsletter is a once a month newsletter, a long form newsletter that I've been publishing for about four years. I started it because, uh, for, well, there was a few reasons. One is I really saw uh, a, a disconnect between the, the church's persistent failure to attract men Uh, on the one hand, and yet all these secular men's gurus attracting hordes of young men. Give me a few names, secular guys. Jordan Peterson, uh, Joe Rogan, all the way down to, originally I was pretty struck with these guys in the manosphere, say a guy like Mike Cernovich, uh, for example. Originally, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos was a guy, if you know who he was, that's a blast in the past. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were following Mike uh, Milo, uh, especially a lot of college kids, you know, there, there would be all these different like political rallies during the 2016 election. And you still can on Gab. You can yeah, follow yeah. him now. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know that. Uh, and he, um, you know, I just go up to people on the street, you know, young people and just who, who look like I had Trump gear on or whatever. And I say, do you guys, do you guys know any of the following people? And I start off naming names. Always they knew who Milo was, always. So it was one of these things where like, that guy had a huge following and I'm like, why are guys like that, you know, have so many men following them. And you, you yeah. could even, you'd even put a guy like Ben Shapiro in that category as well. He's more of a political figure. And yet there don't seem to be really, there hadn't seemed to be really an equivalent to that in the church. The church wasn't reaching men and the attempts at reaching men for people like say Mark Driscoll tended to blow up badly. So that was one reason I really felt like, you, you know, uh, the church was not being competitive in reaching these people. And in part, you know, as I studied it, I realized, I said, you know, I feel like a lot of what's being taught in this conservative reformed evangelical world, just inaccurate. And, and so I wanted, I wanted to set the record straight. There's also the fact that, you know, the, the people talk about like deaths of despair and, and, and opioid deaths among uh, kind of working class and declining life expectancy and I, I did a lot of work in my urban policy, uh, um, you know, kind of realm uh, with Rust Belt cities in the Midwest and a lot of these post-industrial communities. And a lot of their problems are not necessarily economic problems. They're more spiritual problems or personal problems. And that's where you're from, right? Right. Yeah. I'm from rural Southern Indiana. And so I, I do believe there's economic policies. We need to change. There's public policies. But I really kind of wanted to say we need to actually you know, reach people, you know, first and foremost with the hope of the gospel here. And, and, and so I wanted to get upstream of that. So there was a lot of things, there was a lot of things going into it. Uh, so I started this newsletter and uh, it just, it just, you know, went from there. I started with 35 people and uh, it just, it just grew to now there's thousands of people on it. So it's been, it's right. been quite a ride. Well, you're, you're a brilliant guy. I mean, I've read, uh, people have sent me your newsletter and I, I've read it and I've listened to some of your podcast work and stuff. Um, and it's, uh, well, I'll let you describe kind of what level would you say educationally, would you say what you talk about is kind of on a college level, high school level mixture? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely targeted at uh, 
college, you know, college level people. I do have sort of like, you know, rank and file guys um, that I'm trying to reach. But a lot of the people that, I, that I'm reaching and trying to reach are like pastors or they're theologians or they're, you know, teaching in seminary uh, or they're, they're other kind of thought leaders. Um, you know, that's, re- that's really the target market. I, because I feel like, like especially with like the, the working, working class people, the issue I think is not that we have some deficiency of democracy in our country such that, you know, populism is really the answer. I think our problem is our elite are off base. Yeah. We need reform. We know we need reform in the elite. We need restructuring of the elite. And so I'm trying to reach, you know, in essence, the the intellectual class um, of the Christian world and talk about things like, hey, you know, you're wrong in the way that you're talking about concepts like servant leader, for example, and to also give them frameworks to understand the world that we live in. You know, the, in this 21st century you know, America is radically different than even 1990s America. And I feel like part of the problem with a lot of these churches and pastors is they're sort of grappling to try to figure out how do we, how do we live as Christians as the church in the 21st century? Right. And, you know, so I, I do a lot of frameworks and analysis around that as well, which, you know, I really draw on my consulting background for that because that's what you do when you're a consultant. So, well, what do you make of uh, this kind of gap that the intellectuals, uh, I, should, I should say the elites have kind of left us where, you know, just going back 50 years, even you can see a remarkable difference when, um, when you had even, you know, Billy Graham was on talk shows because he was considered part of the establishment, part of the right. uh, elite, even though his role was much more to working class, he set an example. And so did um, even just businessmen. Uh, they, there was sort of a, the way they dressed, everything they did, they had to set kind of a standard. What happened to all that? Yeah, it's, it's a little challenging to, to figure everything out. Um, but, but I would say people were talking about the fact that the elite of America uh, were coming essentially detached from the mass population base for quite some time. Back in the early 90s, Robert Reich, who was, you know, he's a left-wing economist who was Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. He wrote a big op-ed in the New York Times called The Secession of the Successful, basically talking about how the elite class have essentially seceded from society, retreated into their own, you know, private universe in which things are good for them, but they really have a lot less concern about uh, the country. You know, Christopher Lash wrote a book called The Revolt of the Elites. So this has been, this has been talked about for a while, but in essence, if we think back to, the, to uh, industrial America, back when, you know, I can't remember the guy's name, is Wagner was famously said, you know, I always thought what was good for America was good for General Motors and what was good for General Motors was good for America. (laughs) We don't have that anymore. You know, it used to be a company like General Motors, you know, uh, in order to sell a lot of cars, we need to have a a prosperous economy. And it took a lot of blue collar workers with good wages to make them. And so the executives wanted bigger bonuses. It means they want lots of people who can buy cars. They employ a lot of people. Today, there's a big disconnect. I mean, a lot of these tech companies don't employ all that many people, certainly not at, at high wages. You essentially have, you know, a lot of very poorly paid, say, warehouse workers at Amazon, you know, a few very highly paid software engineers and, and, and business people, and then maybe even, a, a, you know, a massive amount of offshore labor now that, that's being done. So the, the link between the fortunes of the elite and the fortunes of America as a whole, uh, you, you know, has really become detached and disconnected 
Yeah. It's a very, 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 very complicated, very complicated subject, but it's now very yeah. possible for say the top 10 to 20%, you know, of the of, of people, you know, at the top of the socioeconomic ladder to live incredible lives while the median American is seeing their life expectancy decline, income, real incomes decline, their communities fall apart, et cetera. And that's not a healthy place for, no. for our country. Uh, I, I'm going to just give you an opinion. And I want you to just tell me if I'm right or wrong on this or what you think about it. But um, it seems to me that people like Jordan Peterson and others have filled this gap. And they've done so in a way that's almost, um, whether they realize it or not, semi-religious. And I, I think back to a book I had read by Richard Weaver years ago, uh, Ideas of Consequences, which I know is formative for a lot of conservatives. Um, and, you know, he talks about the philosopher kings, the, the gentlemen, and then the specialist. And I almost sense that there's been a failure of the specialists, that the specialists, they, they're an empty suit. They, they're so narrow. They don't really have any way of um, connecting to the people they're supposed to be helping. And Jordan Peterson walks in and he's the he's going back to the philosopher king kind of, and or the theologian as someone who wants to kind of figure out um, what makes reality tick. And uh, for men, especially who don't have role models or don't have... Um, uh, ways of thinking about themselves as men, because we don't have specialists in that category. Uh, they just latch on to him. So tell me, is that a fair analysis? Uh, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, if you look at our society, uh, sort of the ideologies or belief systems of mainstream society are very uh, hostile towards men and masculinity. You could think about, for example, talk toxic masculinity. I mean, there's there's okay. any number of articles you could read in the mainstream publication, always viewing, you know, masculinity as, as some sort of a, a, a fault, basically. And a lot of young men are growing up essentially fatherless. Um, you know, out of wedlock birth rate today is at 40%. Uh, Divorce rate still remains very high. Uh, so a lot of people did not have, you know, their father as, as a strong presence in their life. A lot of the baby boomer father, you know, parents, you know, were somewhat detached from their kids. Certainly in the older generation, it's less true, I think, in the younger generation of boomers. Uh, and so a lot of there's kind of a, a deficit of uh, people, you, you know, men connecting into the lives of younger men and talking to them in a way that affirms who they are as men. And Jordan Good Peterson, point. I think what, one of the biggest things that's different between say, a Jordan Peterson and uh, a Mark Driscoll or a Matt Chandler. I mean, Driscoll and Chandler just, just brutally beat down men in their congregations. And they kind of <laughs> forgot that, like, you know, the drill instructors isn't just there to tear you down. He's there to build you back up. That's right. And so a guy like, a guy like Jordan Peterson, when you, when you hear him, he, he does deliver some, some tough messages, uh, maybe, to some of these guys, you know, about taking accountability and responsibility for themselves. But you also get the sense that he's on your team, right? That he yeah. cares about you, that he wants to help build you up. He's not just there to build himself up at your expense, you know? And so I think this idea, I think one, one of the reasons somebody's talking to somebody yesterday, he's like, I noticed so many of these millennial women hate Jordan Peterson. I can't figure it out. He's so anodyne. I'm like, well, one thing that Jordan Peterson does that I cannot think of a single Christian pastor who does is Jordan Peterson treats men, young men, as if they are ends in and of themselves. Hmm. They are not here 
just for the benefit of society. They're not here just for the benefit of their wives and kids, but he treats them like they're important who they are themselves, right. not as instruments to something else. And, and that's powerful. That's very powerful. And that's something the church does not do. You, know, you hear something, even the supposedly pro-men people who say things like, well, if you reach the man, you'll reach the family. Yeah, You'll hear that a lot. Well, what is that really saying? It's like, I'm not here to reach you. I'm here to reach your family. And you're just the vector that I'm using <laughs> in order to do that. And I'm not saying right, that's what they're right. thinking consciously, but there's a lot of that embedded in it. And, yeah. and all of the talk about servant leader is really essentially about, and, and, no, and, and I'm thinking about this a lot. Nowhere do you see in evangelical teaching the idea that a man has any legitimate right to assert his self-interest or preferences in any situation. It, it's pretty astonishing to think about. And, you know, Peterson, you know, he, guys like that don't do, they don't talk to men that way. Talk to, talk to me if you would about two things. You mentioned servant leadership. Uh, something else you didn't mention though, I'd love to hear your thought on the modern patriarchy movement. If you want, I don't know how to label this, but there's yeah. sort of a, an under uh, current of men who want to be men. Um, but they often do so in these, I'm just going to stereotype it. I'm not saying this is my assessment. I'm saying this is the assessment a lot of people have of this. These kind of like really long beard, hyper homeschool, family integrated, you know, goat herding cults, you know, like right. that's the perception some people have of that. And, you know, they have 10 kids and their wife is just, you know, without modern assistance, trying to make meals for them all day. Talk to me about those two things, if you would, kind of on, yeah. on the left wing, this sort of more servant leadership idea, if we want to call it left, but this more establishment, and then this kind of undercurrent rebellion that's kind of homeschoolish and all that. Yeah, so uh, servant leader is a term that you even hear it used in secular society, and I don't think the term itself is objectionable, but what you see of servant leadership in sort of conservative, this conservative evangelical world is it's, it comes out of this complementarian gender theology. So essentially, uh, you know, the traditional view that sort of, you know, the husband was the head of the home came under a lot of uh, attack during second wave feminism. And, you know, most of, most of the Christian church ended up, you know, rejecting the previous approach in favor of essentially gender equalism or some kind of egalitarianism, as you might say it. And in the 80s, a number of these more conservative people, John Piper and Wayne Grudem were kind of the two main figures in that, decided to push back on that and say, no, you know, the Bible actually does say, you know, that the, that the, that the husband is the head. And so we have to affirm that. But in essence, they agreed with a lot of the feminist critiques of, of the traditional approach. And what they did was, ultimately speaking, they sort of nominally affirmed headship in, in, in the home, but they redefined it to mean something other than what had, had traditionally understood. So it's sort of like, you know, new wine and old wineskins, uh, if you will. Right. And so in essence, what, what it means to be the head of the home is to be a servant, right? Your, your role as the head is not to be a leader, but to really be a servant. And so you, you, you display your leadership by being a servant. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, often attached to, you know, uh, various scriptures where, you know, you know, Christ said, yeah, you know, I did not come to be served, but serve, or they'll use the foot washing episode. But you'll notice one of the things that they never do is they never define, well, who decides what form the service takes, mm. or who decides whether the person's doing a good job serving. 
you know, Peter famously didn't want his feet washed by Jesus. The disciples did not get to choose how Jesus served them, right? right so there's, right. there's, there's a lot of ways that they kind of take little bits and pieces of scriptures and package them and things like that. And so, in essence, they've and essentially taken taken this headship idea and turned it on its head. You know, essentially, they've defined it as basically pleasing your wife, serving your wife, all of these things. And you'll often see this. Sometimes they literally do this. Are you going to serve yourself? Or are you going to serve your family? Going to serve your wife and kids? You say, well, obviously you can't serve yourself. That selfishness we know as Christians, we're supposed to care about others and, right. and all this stuff. But it's sort of like it's sort of like George W. Bush's. Are you with us? Or are you with a terrorist? <laughs> like as if those are the only two options in the There's whole a world. False dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. It, those ideas. You know. Well, maybe you maybe you could be using all your talents and energies in the service of mission. And I, you know, I like to use the example of Tim Keller. Right when he was sitting in sitting in Philadelphia. And his wife was not sold on going to New York to start Redeemer. He made a decision like we're going in, and they talk about that story in their uh, in their marriage book. And he he was he was leading on mission. And actually, I think it's a great example because they actually were on mission together. Right. It wasn't just him doing something while she was you know making pancakes. They actually went in there together on mission, and, and so it was an outward focus thing. So there's a lot of things like that. The other thing they get wrong about servant leadership is they essentially say that women are attracted to servant leaders. You know, a women, Christian women, they want a man who's on fire for God, right? They want this guy on fire for God, who's, you know, kind, conscientious, emotionally affirming, all Plays of these things. Plays a good acoustic guitar, yeah. All that sort of stuff. And, <laughs> you know, the, the truth is they sort of conflate two different sets of criteria. Criteria one is, you know, what makes someone a, you know, a good marriage match? Right. And so, and that's where being godly comes in. If someone's not a Christian, if they're not godly, if they're not kind, if they're not, if they're not all these things, you probably don't want to marry them. On the, but the second thing is what makes someone attractive? And there's some, there's some overlap between those, but a lot of ways, so what, what makes someone attractive is not what makes them a good marriage candidate. And I think most, most guys, if you just look at yourself, say, you know, are there women that you think are very attractive that you're like, I'm not interested in dating or marrying that person. Yes. Right. Conversely, are there people who, you know, you think, wow, that's a, that's like a really high quality woman. She's great, but I'm just not attracted to her. So there's two different sets of things and we need to cultivate both. You know, guys like Matt Chandler says, you know, godliness is sexy to godly people. Jordan Peterson says, girls are attracted to boys who win status competitions with other boys. And so who's more accurate? I'd say Jordan Peterson's much more accurate, right? That's why... People right. want to be with the captain of the football team, even right? or the rock musician, or or people who've people who've achieved a lot of status. Like you know, it, right. it, what's attractive in it? Status, power, confidence, charisma. Many of these things generate attraction. And that's sort of left out of the church's teaching, and that's what a lot of again the Petersons and a lot of the secular men's guys will tell you. Now, they kind of give you a more accurate view of of of. of attraction. So I think there's like a lot of things that, that are kind of mistakes buried in this servant leader notion. So we're going to, we're going to circle back uh, to take a, a phrase from our, uh, <laughs> our new, uh, uh, oh, what's she called? Press secretary. Um, we're going to circle back to the Tim Keller thing. Cause I got some questions on that, but I wanted yeah. to just say real quick uh, for some people who are listening. Um, I think you, you recognize, I certainly do that Jordan Peterson um, it has a faulty foundation for some of these things. So, so he's coming to the right conclusions sometimes through the wrong avenues. Um, I think he uses kind of a Darwinian approach to why women are attracted to men and stuff. And we would probably say, I'm assuming you would say that 
the reason is because that God created men to be, to, to have dominion and to accomplish goals. And, and that's what, you know, that's the reason it's built into us that women see that yeah. and are attracted to it. Yeah. You know, I do find it interesting. If you look at all of these men's gurus, virtually all of them are either atheists or have some sort of new age spirituality. I would put Jordan Peterson's Jungianism in the new age category, and they all heavily rely on evolutionary psychology mm-hmm. as their basis. And, you know, to me, like evolutionary psychology is like a story we tell ourselves to make sense of the world. You know, we see something and then we sort of tell a story of we must have evolved this way. Right, um, right. You know, you know, that must be why it is. But it's not like it's not like they've got some collection of genes that, like, well, we know this gene controls this behavior and we can see how this gene has mutated over time. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, very, it's very deductive. It's, it's very, very, yeah, it's very, it's very, it's sort of like, you know, it's like, why did, you know, why did Tim Keller, we'll talk about Tim Keller. Why did Tim Keller succeed in New York? Why well, I go back, well, he succeeded because of X, Y, and Z. Well, if he'd failed, I could probably say, well, he failed because he did X, Y, and Z. Right, right. You know, it's right. like, the, it's the same story. You know, I think it's, so, you know, if you want to use Evo Psych stories to, you know, kind of help you as a tool, I'm not totally opposed to that. But I do think, you know, looking at what God tells us about creation is probably a better way. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I, I would Just probably maybe. take a little stronger stance there. I'd say I, I wouldn't want to use any of that stuff. Um, but I still recognize that the thing that attracts people to Jordan Peterson, it's not it's not the, the psychology as much as it is the he's, he's providing, he's trying to approach an answer that they are not getting anywhere else. They, they know that they're wired a certain way because that's reality and no one's offering any kind of explanation or guidance for them. Um, why don't you talk to me now though, about, um, for our listeners about that second category, because this undercurrent overreaction, some would say to feminization within the church. Uh, what about the guys who say I'm a patriarch and I, you know, I run my house this way and they put their foot down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's indisputable that the Bible is a patriarchal book. So I think we just, we have to acknowledge that. Where I, I think we run into challenges is, you know, the Bible was written in a pre-industrial society. And so I've written a lot about the changes that occurred from pre-industrial society into industrial and post-industrial society. So in a pre-industrial society, the household was actually the um, the center of economic production. You know, most people were like farmers or, or you know, you know, shepherds or things like that. Virtually everyone worked in food production. It was a rural society, and the household basically was the place where all economic production occurred. It's the place where healthcare occurred. It's the place where old age old people were taken care of. It was where, you know, the social safety net was. It's where sort of defense and policing even was. You can think about when Lot's kidnapped Abraham. He doesn't call the cops. He he gets his guys and goes and gets them. I mean, that was basically it. And when we switched to an industrial society, um, you know, in the the pre-industrial society, women had a very economically productive role in the home. Uh, You know, they were, uh, you know, preserving the foods, making the clothes, doing a lot of the medical care. They were, they were doing economically productive work. When we switch to the industrial society, you know, the husband ceases to do any economic role in the home and he goes off to work in a factory and office and the wife kind of becomes a homemaker. And so you end up, you know, with these 1950s kind of scenarios that produce kind of Betty Friedan style 
a malaise among some some women because in essence they didn't have anything to do right which in is the second sense. wave second wave feminism yeah. for those yeah, who don't know. yeah yeah so you, you know and you know when we had a homestead economy in like the 1820s you know men and women were basically both working hard all day every day just to put food on the table just That's to survive right. now we essentially have economic surplus and you know women had essentially lost much of their functional role in the home and for people who had talents that they wanted, they wanted to put to use, that produced a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of anxiety and negativity. So I think when we try to take this old kind of concept of, of, of a patriarchal society and apply it in the modern industrial and post-industrial society, it does sometimes end up, as you say, like guys and beards kind of LARPing, right, a little bit. You know, because our, our society, you know, again, as I always say, Rome was an actual patriarchy. Uh, and it was sort of a legal cultural patriarchy. Today, we live in a legally and culturally egalitarian society. That's just reality. And right. so how we live out what the Bible says in the modern world is, is important. And one of the things that you've noticed a lot of people talking about is how to restore, you know, C.R. Wiley talks a lot about this. How do we restore some semblance of real functionality and substance of the household? Because the household today is basically a you know, somebody called it's a consumption cooperative, right? You know, you're you're home with your wife and your kids. So basically you're you're consuming stuff together, you have this sort of emotional bond together, and you raise kids together. But other than raising kids, there's no real function to the household. So, you know, it used to be that if you weren't part of some household structure, you were, you know, really in bad shape, which is why the Bible talks so much about widows and orphans and people who are, you know, marooned outside of that. Well, today. You know, that's one reason the divorce rate's so high is because you don't really need to be married in order to, you know, make ends meet and live in today's society. You know, the household doesn't do much. You know, we yeah. buy things on the marketplace or the government provides things for us that used to be produced at home. So I think we need to think in a more sophisticated way about society and how we live uh, in that way. And so I think just saying going back to being, you know, going back to say patriarchy, I don't think that anyone has really cracked the code on that. Um, you know, I think there's, 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 uh, you know, some, there is something admirable if someone says, you know, the Bible says this. And so I'm going to embrace what I, I believe the Bible's telling me. I, I actually have a lot of respect for fundamentalism because it's like, Hey, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That sort of simple faith that says this is what the Bible says. I have to believe it. I have to live it. Right. I think is very powerful, but it's also the case that, you know, a lot of times in our society, you know, it doesn't necessarily provide a lot of guidance in how to live in our society. So I think, I think how to live out the Bible's kind of commands uh, in, in today's world is really a big challenge because our world is so different from, say, the world of Proverbs 31. Yeah. Yeah, right? that's, a, that's where, a very good know, point. That's a very yeah, good I mean, point. Yeah. If you think about, you know, if, again, if you think about Proverbs 31, you have the woman at home overseeing this large home-based economic enterprise. Her husband is out at the gates of the city. So he's one of the elders of the city. He's administering the public realm. You know, so he is out there as the public facing representative of the home, like involved in governance, right? It's, it's not like he's just, he's just out there hanging out with his buddies. They're actually running the town. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of things like that that were structured in you know, a, a pre-industrial economy that, that looked totally different in a post-industrial economy. Sure. 
you know. This is a great place to insert this question because I, I put out on a few different social media platforms uh, the offer that if anyone had questions, they could write in. Here's one from uh, one of the patrons. Um, uh, Aaron, are you part of a church body that is living out masculinity according to God's definition, where men are leading their wives and families well and the older men are pouring into the younger men? If so, how has that body of believers worked together to create this environment and enjoy the fruits of that labor? And uh, so anyway, he, um, he, he's asking kind of from the same perspective of not um, maybe seeing a clear example of this. Could we get practical for a moment? Tell me yeah. kind of what this looks like, uh, maybe in regards to we're not in this pre-industrial society, but what, what does it look like to follow these commands that were given in that society today? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question. You know, the, the churches that I've attended have tended to be, you know, that professional class, upper middle class uh, type people. And what I would say, uh, just as we've seen from scholars like uh, Robert Putnam or Charles Murray have written about how basically that top 20% of people kind of socioeconomic attainment, you know, they're doing pretty well socially. So they tend to get married and stay married, right? So right. Um, I would say, you know, kind of the churches I've attended have, have had, you know, mostly stable families, you know, mostly people you would say by the standards of the world, quote unquote, have their life together. I would not say there's been this great community of men thinking about, you know, how to really live out life in this world in this way. I do think that uh, the people I think, again, the person I think who's kind of on the leading edge of this is C.R. Wiley, wrote a great book called Man of the House, um, and another one called The Household and the War for the Cosmos, that I think do give some practical tips um, about this. So I, I think there's, you know, more focus today on entrepreneurship, more focus on a lot of other things. I think some of what, uh, you know, Doug Wilson and his guys have done in Moscow in terms of the environment that they've built there. Um, you know, you can put aside his teachings, you know, if you don't like his teachings, some people don't like him. But like what they've built in Moscow, I think is trying to build something like that uh, as well. That, I that's think good, good stuff. Example. Uh, what about for yourself personally? Like um, maybe just give everyone uh, without, you know, getting too uh, intrusive here, maybe a, a day in the life of Aaron Wren with his family. Um, what, what does that look like in, in light of what you're advocating on your podcast? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially I'm self-employed, uh, you know, so uh, the masculinist is now essentially my job. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on that. So, uh, you know, a, a couple of things I did. I mean, if you roll back to when I started The Masculinist, I was single. And, uh, you know, I, I was older. I was single. I, I'd previously been married and gotten divorced. And that divorce with no, no children, that, that divorce was really, uh, you know, a, a very difficult time for me and sort of catalyzed me becoming a Christian, actually. I, I wish I could have this. My, my conversion story is, is, in essence, a very... Um, standard one and that you, know, you run into some troubles in life and all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, maybe I ought to think about God because I can't handle this, right. which, uh, you know, is a good thing, I guess. Um, but I sort, of, I sort of rebuilt, you know, rebuilt how I thought about, about being a man. And, um, you know, I said, first off, I want to get married. So, uh, you know, I did get married. I said, I want to, I want to have kids. I want to li live life differently. So got married, had kids. We moved back here to, um, to Indiana from New York one reason was I said, I want to be embedded in a place where I have organic community, organic in, in a sense that is natural community. So my wife and I are both from Indiana originally. So we have an organic community uh, connection to this community, our families there. 
you know, she has a lot, she had lived most of her adult life in Indianapolis, had a lot of friends there. So we wanted to embed ourselves in a community of people, you know, in a kind of an extended family network, in a, in a network of connections where we have a, a real organic um, yeah. connection. Attachment to and, place. Right. And so the idea of starting the masculinist right before, before I, 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 we got married, I, I, I said to my wife, now wife, I said, I just want to let you know, there's a few things you got to be comfortable with if we're going to get married. One of them is I'm going to go do this men's thing. I hadn't started it yet. I'm going to do something on men's issues. And I'll tell you now, the ride might get bumpy. So if you're not, <laughs> if you're not on board with that, if you're not on board with that, then, you know, yeah. that, that's the mission. I'm taking on mission. So one of the things that I did personally is I, I went, into, uh, went into marriage, you know, with, with, a, with a kind of a mission-focused frame. I said, I want to be outward. We want, uh, this is something that's very important. There's a mission in the world. That, that I feel called to do. I would love for you to be part of that mission with me. But if we don't have a line, if you don't have alignment on the mission, what's your, what's your vision for your household, then right. the, you, know, you have problems. So there, there was that. And then I, I have worked to become, again, call it self-employed. This is a, this is a household-based enterprise uh, that's, that's there. Another thing that we did in New York, you know, there, when, there's a lot of people in New York who are single and, you know, they're living that kind of New York single lifestyle. And when we were married and we had a kid, you know, we, we wanted to invite people into our home so they could see how we live and just say, you know, here's us eating home cooked meals instead of ordering every meal out on seamless, you know, so, so that kind of like having our home be a place of hospitality and a place, man, a lot of people do that. Uh, a lot of people do that. I think, um, you know, so I'm going to say there's anything unique to that, but wanting to basically be something of a, uh, you know, call it countercultural example and how we're, how we're living our lives uh, there. Obviously, you know, we were very involved in our church community, trying to embed ourselves in, in networks of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I tried to build up in, in New York, a, a band of brothers. I think a lot of guys uh, don't really have a lot of friends uh, other than like the, the, the husbands of their wives' friends. And so I've gone out and said, you know, I want to have, you know, you know, men that I'm engaged with in life, these, these, my own relationships with these people as we're building each other up and kind of propelling each other forward, you know, in yeah. our faith and our missions and things like that. But I, I would say, I don't claim to have, you know, I don't claim to be perfect by any means uh, in, in what's, you know, what, what I do, but I have made some, some intentional uh, choices to try to be more, um, you know, more, uh, more aligned with what I call healthy, healthy patterns of living. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's important. And man, you, you can't, I mean, you do have to be intentional about your life. I do think that's very important, but you know, it, yeah. you also have to have, you know, certain things have to happen organically. Right. So I can say, I want to be married, but you know, if I hadn't met my wife, it wasn't someone that like, wow, I really want to be married with this person, this person, maybe I wouldn't be married today. You know, right, can't right. just say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go marry this person over here. So there, there has to be like a real organic connection. You can't just treat it as sort of a bloodless, um, you know, business plan or something like that. There does have <laughs> to be like organic connection. Uh, but you also have to be, in, you also have to be intentional about your life and about relationships and, and things like that. You know, a few years ago, um, when I was, I was living uh, in the place where I had grown up, I, I had a, a number of guys I was friends with and, um, uh, 
in fact, just the other day, someone was asking me about, you know, how many weddings were you in John, John? And I couldn't remember how many weddings I was a groomsman in because we, I just had so many friends that were guys. But one of the things, you know, we'd often do, and I, it's kind of dawned on me that I didn't plan it this way, but, um, it wasn't like there was some men's ministry, like an official program in a church that just, you know, bound us together because, you know, we sat listening to someone lecture on scripture. It was more, it was organic, as you said, um, and in doing a lot of things guys like to do. Uh, so, you know, I would sometimes go over to people's houses if they were working on their car and kind of like hang out with them there uh, yeah. or go on a hike. You know, I loved hiking or outdoor sports. So, you know, uh, who wants to come? And, and that's kind of how th those relationships formed. And there was ministry opportunities in that that I didn't even I wasn't trying to bring about ministry opportunities, but it was normal course of everyday life, men doing what men are designed to do, want to do, um, like doing. And, and I, I just, you know, I kind of thought, wow, this is, this is almost like revolutionary, even though it shouldn't be, this is just normal. Why, why aren't, you know, pastors and church leaders, uh, more of them at least kind of tapping into this because I think Jordan Peterson kind of taps into that intellectual desire men have to sit around and you know, we think of Spurgeon with his cigar talking about these big ideas. Well, there's men who like to do that. And, um, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're tapping into as well in, in, in some respect. Why is it that uh, Christians in general or churches, church leaders, uh, they don't have this kind of embedded in them? Uh, they, they, they almost want to do something extra for the men that isn't, doesn't even fit the men to try to attract them. Um, when we know that that's usually a disaster. What, what, what is it about that? What, what, why this deficit? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I will say our society used to have a lot of uh, spaces where men naturally formed relationships with other men. So for example, it used to be common that men served in the military. That's, that used to be standard. Almost everybody went to the service at some point. Not true anymore. Um, you, you know, far few people were in the military. There used to be a lot of essentially all men's clubs, um, you know, which could be some kind of fraternal society. It could be major kind of uh, downtown city clubs. There were a lot of all male organizations. 99% of those have gone, um, you, you know, co-ed, if you will. You know, they, they've, they've essentially, um, you know, they've been relentlessly attacked. So you can think about a golf club like Augusta National. You know, I think the New York Times literally ran hundreds of articles attacking Augusta National for being an all-male club. Mm. And so you're essentially almost not allowed to have an all-male organization today. There's still plenty of all-female organizations, right? They created this all-female kind of club called The Wing. You may have think it was called The Wing or something like that. And so th there are a lot of organizations and things catering to women, but if it's a male space, so essentially all the places where, you know, men might have naturally come together, like at the Masonic Lodge, and you're probably not a Freemasonry. I'm going to guess right. you're not into Freemasonry. Or the Elk Lodge. The Elk Lodge yeah. or any of these places. You know, and even the military now the is Proud integrated. Boys. You know, everything, everything's <laughs> integrated, right? And, right. and so, um, you know, I do think, you know, one of the, you mentioned Proud, the Proud Boys. I think one of the, the, the attractions of organizations like that is people want to be in some type of fraternal organization with other men, and just, they just don't exist in the way that they used to. Intergenerational, too, yeah. to, to some yeah. extent, yeah. Yeah. And so there were, you know, there were a lot of things there. And some of that, you know, you know, some of it's, you know, men's own fault, you know, that Robert Putnam wrote the book Bowling Alone about the decline of bowling leagues. You know, people still bowl, but, you know, league bowling went down. So a lot of the civic kind of the civic organizations went into decline. Um, 
but there used to be a lot more all-male spaces and all-male organizations um, that that men were a part of that they created sort of you know fraternity. As you know, there's a difference between you know, yeah, uh, say a locker room or you know a boardroom that's all men and one that, that has women. The, the social dynamics are going to be different. Oh, in a mixed totally different. Totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So it becomes. Um, you know, you know, so that that is that's been that's been one where I think there's been a decline in men connecting with each other, and so they. That is one thing where I think people try to set these things up. I mean, I'll say church men's programs are you know, one of the things about them. They may be positive. It, it is one of the few places where you're sort of like allowed, if you will, to have like a men's ministry <laughs> right. in a way that you you couldn't necessarily have a you know, a, 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 men, a men's, you know, uh, secular organization. And, and there are some good ones. I'm not knocking all, all of those at all. I'm, I'm just, um, my experience being in many different churches uh, has mostly been when, when they try to do that, it ends up being not distinctively, um, not that you have to try artificially, but it doesn't, um, I don't know, it, it ends up being a place where men kind of sit and are lectured or, uh you know, we're going to tell you how to, how, all the things you need to do to memorize, to be a man or to learn. And it, 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 there's not like a free forum there for organically yep. kind of, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, I, you know, I do. And you know, this, this, this sort of idea of how the church can reach men, serve men, and it's a long standing. you know, the church has skewed female, you know, basically since the beginning of the country, you know, you know, at the end of the day. Are you trace it back that far? Yeah, you know, it go by. I think even in like Massachusetts, Puritan Massachusetts, you know, far more women than men were attending church. Um, you, you know, I do, I do think some of the the patterns that I, that I talked about about kind of you know kind of the man the man bad women good pattern goes back to about eighteen hundred, yeah. but uh, in England, right later than that in the United States. Um, but there, there was always this kind of kind of gender skew and worries about how industrial this idea about industrial society and right. you know there's nothing new about that. So the muscular Christianity movement, I think, was a you know an example of you know institutions like the YMCA, and even the Boy Scouts were probably part of that. That were like we have to create these organizations to, you know, supplement create, yeah supplement create manly men. You know, men are kind of becoming feminized in this industrial world. Boy like Scouts, party farming. Yeah. yeah. So I think you know. I, and they, they, they've had some success, they've come and gone. And so I think, I think there has been that. And it's what it's like, this idea that like, oh, I have all the answers. I do not have all the answers. Like, and, and people all along the way have, have been sort of struggling with like how to reach men. Right. So I, I not, I'm not trying to have all the answers, uh, but I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm on the, I'm, I'm, I'm on a, at least on a search for truth. I think some of the things like, I can at least know what's so, Socratic wisdom. I know it's not true. You know, I've learned a lot of what I don't know. Right. Uh, you, you know, it's like, I know that I don't know, but I know that that stuff over there ain't true. <laughs> so Which that, is perfectly fine. You're having the conversation. Yeah. You're starting the discussion. That's what yeah. matters, I think, in all this. Um, and that's what Jordan Peterson does. I mean, and we've mentioned his name several times. I know there's others, but um, I, I want to ask you uh, about kind of the, the, the gap in the church. Why, why we're still talking about uh, Tim Keller, John Piper, John MacArthur, you know, Mark Dever, the list goes on. All these guys are boomers. Um, where I think John MacArthur is even older than a boomer. Yeah, he would be, wouldn't he? He he might be. He's like in yeah, his he, 80s. I think he is. I think, yeah, I think you're right. He is older. So so these guys, uh, it's aging. We have an aging church, aging leadership in um, Christianity or evangelicalism, broadly speaking. Uh, I don't see the young guys coming on. Uh, in fact, what I see with young guys, if there are rising stars, if you want to call them that. Um, it's guys like, you know, it's like guys like Jamar Tisby, who's not even, he's not a pastor. He's not a guy who's going to be 
um, exegeting scripture, really. He's more of just, uh, he, he's more of a social justice guy who's brought in and platformed by these other guys because they want to kind of get their congregation on board or point to him to show, hey, we're, we're not racist. We're on board with this guy. So he, he doesn't exude the same kind of leadership. I, I don't know where there are young guys who are exuding that kind of leadership in, in the church, broadly speaking. Yeah. Why is that? Well, there, there are certainly a lot of young, you know, hip megachurch pastors who've done very well. I think what you see is a lot of them are, you know, they're kind of more showmen, you know, okay. in, in a sense, like Mark Driscoll kind of fell into that, that a little bit. It's like, they're pastoring a church. They're very charismatic people. Um, they've got big followings, but they're not, you know, nobody's looking to them for intellectual. Right. They're not intellectually. That's what I mean. You know, they're not, they're not building institutions organizations other than their church. So, you know, they've essentially, you know, and maybe even Jordan Peterson falls in. He's a boomer. I think he falls into that, right? He's this charismatic guy who's attracted a large personal following. He does have a more intellectual side to him. Um, but I think, you know, these other guys have been looked at really as uh, thought leaders, you know, in essence, thought right. leaders and not just thought leaders, but like, these are the people who do we look for to see what the church should be doing? Where should it be going? It's, it's that group of people you were talking about. And I think it goes back a lot of it's generational, you know, the baby boomers were this huge generation that came into fairly senior positions relatively early in life in the eighties and nineties and basically are still running the country, you know, yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, today. And so Biden, um, you know, yeah, you know, you know, by, you know, and I, I, um, yeah, I mean, I sort of draw the, um, I, I kind of divide the baby boomers into two groups, early cohort and late cohort. And culturally, I said the baby boomers, culturally early cohort, baby boomers, night 1942 to 1960, uh, 1954. And then the, the late cohort is 55 to 64. And it's that early cohort of people who are really dominant. And, um, you know, so there are a lot of people, I think Biden, was he born in 42? You know, Newt Gingrich yeah. was born in 42. Um, a lot of the people born during the war sort of are sort of baby boomer-like culturally. But yeah, Bill Clinton was the first baby boomer president. He was like the third youngest guy ever elected president, 1992. And he, you know, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump were all born the same year. 1946. <laughs> Hillary was born in 1947. Uh, I think John Piper was born in 1946. Wayne Green was born in 1948. I mean, a lot of these guys are, um, you know, they're all in a, a disproportionate share of them are in that early cohort boomer group. No, there's a disparity. Or, or they're even older than that, like, like yeah. MacArthur. And for whatever reason, you know, they've just, they're just, they just don't want to go away. They don't want to retire. You know, there's no concept of retire, right, real retirement for these people. And, I've noticed that, yeah. You know, a few years ago, it was pointed out there are more people over the age of 80 in the Senate than at any time in our history. And just think about how many people are dying in office at very advanced ages. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, uh, John McCain, right, right. Uh, Robert Byrd, Teddy Kennedy. Like, is it really necessary to die in office? You know, this Indiana Senator, Richard Luger, uh, was, you know, he was defeated in like his attempt to be reelected for his sixth term. He would have been well into his 80s, you know, at the end of that. It's like they're, they're holding on. I mean, uh, Dianne Feinstein's going to be like 92 at the end of her term or something crazy like that. And so there, I think part of it is that um, these people got, got power at a relatively early age 
And they've never brought up a younger generation under them yes. in, in a lot of ways. And I think that is different. And one of the things, the silent generation people, and uh, they kind of call it the greatest generation, the silent generation, they did create, many of them did create um, a, you know, did create uh, kind of a next generation. So Richard Luger, I mentioned him, you know, he was elected mayor of Indianapolis in his 30s. And a bunch of young guys that he brought up, like Mitch Daniels, who then became governor of the state and president now President Purdue, he brought up Mitch Daniels, a bunch of other guys. He sort of built up a bunch of young guys under him. These guys don't necessarily have a lot of great protégés of people that they've built up and handed off, you know, real power to. And, um, and so I do think it's interesting. I do think there's something culturally about the baby boom generation. They were such a large generation and so much of Christianity and evangelicalism was tuned to their cultural sensibilities. And I think that's one of the problems is, you know, as we've got like, you know, new generations now, a lot of things don't necessarily resonate with them. So, so it is interesting, you know, uh, I, I think Piper and Grudem were like 40-ish when they invented complementarianism. And sort of became the the theological leaders of this gender thing that they were going, and there were older people. If you look at like who was in, who was involved in that, they you know if you look at the original Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, they had some older people. Right. Uh, Bill Bright was involved. I mean, they were sort of there, but they sort of were like they had like a background. They had like this. Uh, they called it a board of reference. So it's like here's like the elder statesmen who endorse what we're doing, but they weren't leading, right. and so. Uh, you know, they, there was some space. Um, there was some space in there for these guys to to become something, and then, but they've just been, yeah. You know, they're still the guys you're looking to. It's like people are still, you know, looking at what those guys have. To, not that that's bad, but when there's no when there's no next generation, right. that's not that's not good. Yeah, not good either. So I I, mean, I think it I think it's really interesting uh, to to see. I think that's that's our society in a nutshell. Yeah, and nature pours a vacuum. Someone will fill it. I wanted to um, to do a lightning round with you, kind of. Let's let's do some questions from people. Uh, maybe take a minute, you know, tops yep. to answer some of these, and then let's do some word association just for fun. So here's here's a, a question. Uh, one minute advice on pursuing a woman. I'm sure you could go longer than a minute, but <laughs> what? Well, I I say this: one, you actually have to pursue a woman. You can't just wait for you know lightning to strike. Um, you have to be intentionality, have intentionality about it. I think number one, that means you got to like ask women out on a date, right? physically in the real world, you know, hiding behind. One of the things I did said no online dating, period. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm not going to just say, but like, there's no substitute, I think, for having the confidence to walk up to a woman and ask her out on a date. And of course, she, she might say no, she might go nuclear on you, but being a man is, you know, have courage to put yourself out there. And it's good for you. And if you're a good, if you're, a, if you are the high quality Christian man, then if she turns, turns you down, it's her loss. <laughs> good point. All right. Here's another one. Um, any, uh, oh man, this is such a broad, qu I don't even know how to ask this question. Um, okay. Any practical ideas for um, exercising virtues. I'm, this must be something you've been talking about on your podcast or something, but that's such a broad question. Um, I don't know. Well, Does I would just say, read the Bible. What's the answer? Well, I would use virtue maybe in the the uh, classical sense of excellences, uh, and and so there's you know I think we need to be gaining new skills. Uh, you know, I try to uh, you know I I borrowed this from someone else, but this idea is try to learn one new skill a year, 
And I don't always do that because some skills take you longer, longer than you plan to learn them. Um, you know, but I, I said, uh, you know, when I started the masculinist, like issue two, I talked about skills and I said, you know what, I'm going to try to learn French. And four years ago, I said, I'm going to start learning French. I took classes in New York. And since I come back, I've continued self-studying and I, I subscribed to some French publications. I'm not yet fluent enough in French. I really need to go. It would be great. Wouldn't it be amazing if I could live in France for, you know, a year and learn <laughs> French? But, you know, something like that takes longer than, you know, a year to learn a foreign language. But what are those skills that you're constantly learning and constantly doing to like grow? And how do you become more competent in something? I really Com like that. Developing competences is important. Um. It's, uh, here's another guy. He's, uh, you've been doing an excellent series on conservatism, and this person wants to know your thoughts on how the evangelical church should move forward in the arena of politics. Can you do that one in a short yeah. minute bite? Uh, yeah, I think the most important thing to understand is evangelicalism uh, got attached to cons political conservatism you know, in the late 70s and the early 80s. And Essentially, there, there has been a sort of a baptized political conservatism uh, that has become kind of a, almost like a theological norm within the evangelical church. And evangelicals have gotten nothing in return, basically, for being the most loyal voting bloc of the Republican Party. And so the question is, you know, are you going to continue supporting people who basically aren't going to give you anything? And so I, I think there needs to be a, a rethink uh, of, of the relationship between evangelicals and the Republican Party and some of these things, like especially this reflexive free marketism, you know, private companies can do whatever they want. No, they can't. <laughs> I mean, no, there's a lot of things they can't do. So this like idea like, oh, social media can kick off whomever they want because it's a free, you know, that right. sort of stuff is just, it's, first off, what does that have to do with theology? Nothing. You might believe that, but let's not conflate it with theology. So I think we need to move beyond like a lot of these old Reagan, tired Reagan era talking points that weren't, you know, were imported from other people. Yeah. Anyway, what the answer is, I don't know, but I think we need to be rethinking, you know, rethinking that. Okay. Um, here, here's the Tim Keller question. Uh, what do you think of Tim Keller's social justice teaching? That's the specific question. Uh, because it's, this person says you seem to be very positive towards Keller with the exception of his views on men and women. So what do you think of Keller's social justice yeah. teaching? You know, I'm not a deep student um, of, of his social justice stuff. I think he's, he's unlike a lot of the very woke people, he's been talking about this for a while. You know, so, I, you know, I'll give him credit for not just jumping on the bandwagon. I have found some of his teachings to be a little bit scripture light. Um, and and use, there's kind of a shifting hermeneutical principle when it comes to gender. You know, the Kellers have taken this stance of what I call absolute biblical minimalism, right? Anything that the Bible does not specifically and explicitly, no wiggle room, prohibit women from doing is allowed. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, a woman could do anything another day and man can do. It's like, you know, did the Bible, does the Bible really say a woman can't do X, Y, or Z? That, you know, all, the, all those things. But when it comes to some of these justice issues, the Bible is interpreted in a very, very expansive manner. So like when Daniel's praying over the sins of his people, that creates a very elaborate theology of, you know, corporate guilt and repentance. So I, I do think there's like some inconsistent hermeneutics uh, there, uh, you know, uh, you know, so I'm not, uh, you know, that, that one, I think I did find a little interesting to juxtapose between how narrowly they read gender and how broadly they read social justice, but I haven't, I haven't studied it in great detail. That's just okay. the one thing that really jumped out to my mind. 
Fair enough. Let's do some word association. So give me a, give me a word, uh, you know, two words, I guess is fine, but I'm going to give you some, some words uh, to, for you to describe. So the first one is nationalist. What do you think of? Nationalist. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> this drawing is like, this, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, I'm, not, I'm drawing a blank. Like, you know, okay. nationalism, it's, it's a boogeyman. It's a boogeyman. boogeyman. Okay. All right. I like that. Um, how about servant leadership? Bogus. Wage gap. Doesn't exist once you properly adjust for all the factors. Okay. What about toxic uh, masculinity? Undoubtedly, there are men who do a lot of very bad things, but I think it's, it's, oh, it's an oversold concept. I but let's I, not. I know your associations are getting much longer. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's hard to. <laughs> it's a, yeah, they're getting a lot. They're getting longer. You know. You know. Let's say mixed, mixed, mixed reviews. <laughs> mixed. Re okay. Good. Uh, Jordan Peterson. You know, basic. Basic. I, I, that's a good one. Okay. Socialism. You know, a boogeyman. So, so socialism and nationalism are both boogeymen, then. Yeah, I mean, like. You know, okay. what it was people even mean by socialism? I mean, socialism was state ownership of the means of production. In European context, you know, Francois uh, was it Mitterrand, who nationalized all the companies in, um, in France. So state-owned enterprises and things like that. You know, I just don't think these terms are helpful today. Okay, what about a specific term? Great reset. Uh, same stuff, different day, different name. Okay. Uh, uh, situation comedy. <laughs> In no opinion. Okay. All right. So you, you talked a little bit about, I think, men being like kind of given the rub in some of the situation comedies. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I what don't about, watch I don't watch TV. So that's really like, that's a problem. Oh, here, well here, let's see if you listen to stuff here. here this is going to be, you're going to have a dividing line right here. And half the people will either like you or not like you, depending on how you answer this country music. I like it. Indiana, Indiana's coming yeah, out. You know, I listen to mostly opera today, just to be quite honest with you. But you know, when I was young, I used to listen to a lot of, a lot of country. So I'd say the eighties country is, is really more my style. George Modern Strait. country. I don't, I don't listen to a lot of it, you know, but uh you know, today, but you know, I'm not, I'm not negative on that. The alt country genre, which was big in the nineties. Um, you know, I was really into that. I loved it. Favorite book of the Bible. Hebrews. Hebrews. Okay. That's not the most masculine book. If I were going to choose a book. Yeah. I would rate second Timothy is the most kind of, you know, kind of a treatise on manhood. Actually. I, I, in fact, I even wrote my own commentary on second Timothy, but, uh, uh oh, know, really? but I do, I, but I do like Hebrews. I do like Hebrews. All right. All right. Well, that, those are all the words I had for you. Um, and I probably could have come up with more. That was, that was, that was right. good. Uh, I think, um, if people want to find you, then go to themasculinist.com. And I'm there right now, actually looking at it. You got articles, your podcast, newsletter. Um, anything else you want to tell everyone? No, it's great. Check out, get on the newsletter. That's what I say. If there's one thing you want to do, just sign up for the newsletter. It's once a month. And, uh, you know, uh, I think you'll enjoy it. All right, cool. Well, it's, hey, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you talking about these things. You're a very, in my opinion, you're very sharp and you do great long form conversation. Uh, so um, I hope, you know, those who are listening, uh, go check out Aaron's stuff and 
Um, it, I know some people listen who have bigger platforms and stuff. If they want to send you an invite to speak or to go on a podcast or something, uh, I'm assuming they can get a hold of you through your website. Yeah, I'm very easy to find. Aaron at AaronRen.com. All right. And on Twitter, I believe as well with at Aaron underscore Ren. So. Yeah. I, I barely tweet these days. Not really the main, main platform, but you can look at me there. Yeah. All right. Well, God bless, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye now. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.